Hi, good, good, hello, <laughs> sorry, I'm a little uh, caught off balance because my Skype just crashed and now I'm back. But anyway, hi, welcome everybody. Uh, welcome to our special um, our special Halloween edition of the Tolkien Professor chat here. We're going to have a bit of a, a little bit of a roundtable discussion here tonight. I have uh, been soliciting topics of discussion from listeners through my Facebook page and my Twitter feed and have gotten a whole bunch of uh, very interesting things that that uh, people want to talk about lots of uh, lots of wraiths and ghosts and monsters and things that people would love to uh, to hear us talk about here on Halloween. Um, so uh, I thought I would start. Well, though, I, but I thought first I would ask our our, our live guests here. We're here with uh, with uh, Dave Kale, who is our our host uh, here at Middle Earth Network Radio, and with uh, Laura Burkholtz, who is not only uh, my excellent and erstwhile producer, but also both Laura and Dave, of course, are uh, veterans of the Silmarillion seminar. So um, I, I just wanted to ask if uh, either of you two had uh, things that you would really like to talk about first on the Tolkien and horror or Halloween theme? I do, actually. All right. I'd, I'd love if you could talk about uh, the vampire, whose name I can't really pronounce, Thuringwethil. Thuringwethil, <laughs> yes. Thuringwethil. And, and also Saren's Isle of Werewolves. Yes. I, yeah, so if you could talk about those things, that'd be great. Sure, sure. Well, the vampire one I can talk about fairly briefly, I'm afraid, and I fear disappointingly uh, because although there are vampires mentioned a couple times and Thorin Gwethil is even a named vampire, um, I think it's relatively clear from looking at the ways in which Tolkien is using these things that he doesn't actually mean vampire in the Dracula sense at all. Um, when uh -huh. Tolkien uses the word vampire, he seems always to mean a vampire bat. Um, oh, that's too bad. Yeah, yeah. No, it's <laughs> Thoringwetha was a bat. Uh, I mean, she seems she's a named bat, and she seems to uh, to be a sentient bat. I mean, she seems to be a monstrous bat, um, and that's interesting. But she's not a vampire. She's not a she. She's definitely not a vampire in the Drod Vlakul sense, or Vlad Dracul. I switch those around in the Vlad Dracul sense of the of the term. So, um, and we can see this. Tolkien using that word in that way, um, that is the word vampire, to mean a vampire bat, um, uh, very clearly when he's talking about mere bats. For instance, in The Hobbit, he uses the word vampire. Um, when the cloud of bats accompanies the, um, the goblins and wargs to the Battle of Five Armies, and he... He he alludes to the bats fastening themselves vampire-like on the stricken, uh, and that is like oh. vampire bats. Um, so, well, well, if that ahead. woman, if that woman um, ha was able to take a bat shape and act like a vampire bat, doesn't that kind of make her a vampire if she's drinking blood? Yes, yes, but I just I, I think that. It basically, I don't see any evidence that Tolkien was appealing to what we in the 20th century would call standard vampire mythology. You know, like, so she, she's not an allegory for Count Dracula, then? No, no, <laughs> definitely not. Figure. No, and, she, and I mean, like the whole, like you know, the the connection between vampires and the dead, and uh, and I mean, all of this, like basically. The post Bram Stoker stuff, he doesn't seem to be um, to be invoking that stuff at all. Um, 
I mean, it's it's it, his works are all. I mean, Tolkien's works are all post Bram Stoker, of course. Dracula was published in 1897, but um, and it was ter- terrifically popular. I'd be surprised if he if if he didn't know Dracula, but he uh, he certainly doesn't seem to have been very interested or influenced by that. So I don't think we're supposed to be thinking about the dead at all um, when when uh, he talks about vampires, which is. Sad, but I know it's disappointing <laughs> on Halloween. But uh, but there it is. I think it's vampire bats. The werewolves, though, there are legitimate werewolves. Can I ask one more question about vampires. Sure. How oh, yeah, far yeah. back? How far back do the ideas of vampires go? That's oh, a, that's you mean historically? Like folklore tales and, and oh, stuff yes. like that. But. Oh, yes. Well, I mean, it sort of depends on what level you're talking about. Like, the concept of the vampire is certainly very old. Um, and there are there are stories and also quite global i mean there are you know ancient chinese stories of you know the dead rising to suck blood and things but um but really at the end of the day for all practical purposes you're really talking about bram stoker i mean dracula was a f- like a phenomenon like few other books have ever been a phenomenon um i was uh I was I was going to if Travis were here I would say just to rile him up that like you know Harry Potter is as nothing as a literary phenomenon compared to Dracula, <laughs> uh, but there's no point saying it now because Travis isn't here. But anyway, um, uh, but anyway, no, I mean it was it was it was it was enormous. There were vampire stories out there, but it was not mainstream. This is actually I te- I love Dracula and I teach Dracula in my English 101 class uh, all the time at Washington College and. Um, when I teach Dracula, one of the things that I always, you know, talk about with the students, I'm like, you, when you read when you read this, you somehow have to try to distance yourself from all the things you know or think you know about vampires, and you know, for the sake of trying to understand some of the way that this novel works, try to put yourself in the position to, to realize that the people reading this, by and large, had no idea. I mean, it was just not in the cultural um, view of you know, of modern people um, before Bram Stoker. I mean, it was so, it was so far outside uh, the cultural mainstream that although the identity of Count Dracula, like what Count Dracula really is, um, you know, that is this undead thing, this immortal undead thing, uh, undead thing that sucks blood. Um, what he was was supposed to be, a, it was supposed to be a mystery. I mean, the characters are figuring it out and sort of slowly stumbling to the horrible realization of the truth of what he is. And yet the name, the fake name that he was, that Bram Stoker originally gave uh, to Dracula was not Dracula. His name was going to be Count Vampire. Like like one peer, you know, with a Y instead of an I. I mean, but like that wasn't even going to give it away to anybody. Like it was still going to be a mystery as to what he was because that word meant nothing to anybody. Um, and then Bram Stoker stumbled across the legends of of uh, Vlad the Impaler and loved it to death. And, you know, and the vampire became Dracula. But um, anyway, it's uh, uh, so although the idea of vampires have been around for a really long time, it was pretty fringe culturally. Um, and it really never got in, uh, into like it, to, to being a really popular and mainstream idea until Bram Stoker. 
Do you think uh, Tolkien used the word vampire uh, from the Bram Stoker books, or do you think he was thinking of these old folk tales from way back? I don't think. I mean, because the because of these folk tales, vampire bats were already called that. So I really think Tolkien was just thinking about vampire bats. Uh, I mean, I like I know it's. I mean, and and if you think about it in the context of in the context of the 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 mythology that Tolkien is creating, the vampire bat works really perfectly. Uh, the vampire bats were the messengers of Sauron. You know, Sauron, who was in the first age the lieutenant of Morgoth, um, they had bats. The bats of Sauron were one of the were the only flying creatures who were allied with um, with Morgoth. They were the only evil flying creatures because, of course, as we all know, Balrogs don't have wings. So um, uh, the the bats were the only things that flew. But they were kind of the the evil, you know, parallel to the eagles. They, like they were pretty lame, really, compared to the eagles. And the eagles could uh, it was they, there was there could be no fight in between them. Um, but but you know, as a winged messenger, to have this, you know parasitic blood-sucking thing uh, as his winged messengers, that that seemed really appropriate. You know, so again, it's not about the reanimated dead. It's about, it's about the bats, basically. Yeah. And so, so Thorin Gwethel was a giant bat, and that's why, um, that's why uh, uh, Luthien, when Luthien puts on her skin, which is gross, um, she becomes a giant bat and flies al- flies along next to next to Baron, who has put on the uh, the hame of Draugluin, that is the 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 pelt, the skin of Draugluin, uh, the where the wolf. And they morph into wolf and bat, and proceed thus up to uh, up to Thangorodrim to to knock on Morgoth's door. So, so I'm uh, I'm going to jump in. I want to introduce one of our two um, special guests tonight. So um, George Naylor, uh, who's a regular now on the Hogshead Pubcast, uh, is actually on our Skype call right now, and he's a huge Tolkien fan. And and uh, when he heard we were talking horror and Tolkien, he was like, "Oh, I'd love to be a part of that." So, uh, George, um, welcome. Hi, thanks for letting me uh, jump in on this. George, uh, tell me uh, some about about uh, about your interests in uh, in Tolkien. Did you have any particular sort of thoughts or angles or things that you would want to talk about in the in the issue of Tolkien and uh, horror and monsters and things like that? Well, I'm um, I, I've read through the um, the various comments on the Tolkien Professor page on Facebook and. Um, I'm noticing a lot of comments on Barrow Whites and, and Ringways yes. and, and also Ghosts as well, especially um, how that would have uh, fit into uh, Tolkien's Catholic viewpoint, the Ghosts especially, uh, with the um, the um, Aragorn in the Pass of the Dead yes. uh, aspect of it. Um, I think I don't know, I, I, in Tolkien it seems like um, that um, – these spirits or ghosts are are more uh have a power over the 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 mortal rather than um those who are immortal like uh, legolas in the past of the death uh, dead doesn't really care about yeah um, all, all the all the ghosts that are following while uh gimli as a dwarf who is also mortal would um feel that fear uh so i think i'm not sure where where that's going but it seems to be a, a definite um 
kind of theme there, especially like the the elves who have uh, been in the Undying Lands uh, with the the light of the two trees, and as Tolkien says, they they kind of live in both worlds, yeah, uh, both that spiritual and and uh, the physical plane. So I don't know how that fits in with horror per se. It certainly people are saying, well, they're spooky and things like that, um, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, I I do think that the, the ghosts, um, the ghosts in the paths of the dead, um, it's you know that's one of it's really the only place in the Lord of the Rings where we get anything any actual ghost story itself, and mm-hmm. um, and I think there as far as certainly as far as 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 Catholic stuff is concerned, mostly I guess I would say I don't think it necessarily really comes into the question all that much because it doesn't really have anything to do with like the ultimate fate of anybody's soul. Um, right. You know, what we see in the ghosts is I think related to what we see in the ring wraiths, which is the connection of, of people. Like, okay. People become ring wraiths just as Gandalf explains to Frodo that, you know, Gollum and Bilbo and eventually he himself are going to be like on the, you know, at different stages of the wraithification process. Right. And what appears to happen is when the spirit is kind of attenuated, the spirit is kept, but the body, um, you know, the, the, the body is fading, the body dies away and eventually they become wraiths. It is their spirits are kind of kept with the ring wraiths. It was about immortality. It was about achieving immortality, about cheating death, about, about escaping death and achieving in the end power over death, which of course, of of course, with the kind of irony usually found uh, in Tolkien's moral world meant actually being a slave to death. But, um, but anyway, but they wanted to escape. So they drew out their life so long Remember Bilbo's comment about feeling like butter scraped over too much bread, right? They, right. Um, you know, the metaphor that I've used before is, you know, that Tolkien seems to be kind of appealing to the idea that uh, the medieval idea that basically a human being at birth is given a certain quantity of life. You know, their spirit kind of lasts so long, and uh, the the famous and kind of delightful metaphor that Chaucer uses for this is a beer barrel. That uh, <laughs> um, that you know, like the the a human soul when it's born, like a, a human when it is born is like a beer barrel that's all you know that's all full. And of course, different people have different size beer barrels. You know, people have different life allotments uh, due to them. But anyway, you know, and then you know the tap is running throughout throughout life. The beer is flowing out of the barrel. And then when you get to the bottom of the barrel, that's it. You're done. Um, and basically what the reason that Bilbo is feeling thin and stretched is that, you know, the tap is still running, but it's basically like the beer's being watered down to, to, to keep it coming. And that, you know, that, that his, he's being spread thin. His life is being stretched out unnaturally over, um, over a much longer space than it was actually allotted for, but he doesn't get any more life. His life force doesn't increase in, it just gets stretched over more time. And this ultimately is what we see happen. This is why the ring rates have lost their corporeality entirely. Their body is gone. Their spirits remain still cling to this existence, but it is so attenuated and it's so, um, 
sort of cheapened in this way that all they have is this shadowy enslaved existence and they they don't even really have wills of their own they don't need, they don't even really have wills of their own anymore they're just they're just the slaves of their master so um and Gollum is on the way there he's not there yet but he's further down that mm-hmm. road and I think that the ghosts in the paths of the dead are in a similar kind of position. It's not like the wraiths. It's not the rings that are stretching them out. But, um, you know, with them, the thing which has made them outstay their time is the curse, the curse of Isildur, um, who curses them for breaking their oaths. Um, and that's an interesting thing. But curses like that very often have power in Tolkien. I mean, you know, when somebody administers a curse, especially someone of the kind of stature of Isildur, um, that that tends to stick. And it certainly does in Isildur's case. And that's why they can't they they cannot go. But that's why when they when they fulfill their oath um, and the curse is lifted, then they just vanish. Right. Um, you know, they they just uh, uh, b- because their spirits then finally go to wherever it is that human souls go outside the circles of the world. You know, um, one thing that uh, the um, the ring raids bring up call to mind to me is um, <clears throat> so one thing I, I'm actually not extremely well read in general, but in particular on <laughs> gothic horror stuff. Um, but from listening to Travis's podcast. I believe he's emphasized several times that that sort of a classic um, gothic villain um, um, theme is the desire to overcome death, but but sort of yes. sort of in the unhealthy way. And I think so. I think there's actually something very interesting going on here with the ring raids and uh, Voldemort from Harry Potter. Dracula is sort of sort of one of those. Um, undead gothic villains, yes. um, which I think is very interesting. Um, I don't know where I'm going with that other than yeah. just point Well, no, out. I mean, in that way, you know, certainly the ring wraiths are the natural extension of that. I mean, the the thing that drives Voldemort uh, to, to make the horcruxes is ultimately you know the the central thing that leads the ring i mean they desire power and they get you know they the the rings of power that they're given give them power to dominate others um but in the end with these humans just like with the numenorians who are corrupted by sauron in the end it's always about death and it's always about power over death and escaping from death um you know, Voldemort is like, you know, living our Farazan's dream, right? Yes. Or, you know, thinks he is. <laughs> um, and uh, that's, that's um, you know, so so certainly, certainly that theme is pretty consistent. Now, with Dracula, with Dracula, it's a little bit different in that we don't, we're not given, um, Is this is one of the things that you see always in Dracula movies. One of the things that I've never seen a Dracula movie that didn't take this step that the book doesn't take, which is to give Dracula a rationale. Like they want to explain why, like what led Dracula to become a vampire. The book doesn't give any hint of it. Um, and, you know, he's never, but, but of course, when it's given, you know, sometimes for vengeance, sometimes for desire for immortality or whatever, um, it, it's the, that, that desire isn't there in the book. Um, but uh, uh, that is Dracula's own 
motivation. But but certainly that escape from death is one of the things where we do see it in the book is in Renfield. Renfield is the one is the character right. in the book who is the vo- the mouthpiece of that desire for life and that desire to escape death. Renfield is the Arpharazon figure in Dracula, <laughs> which is except he's much cooler. I love Renfield. He's my favorite character in in Dracula, but um but yeah certainly that desire to escape death is i mean that's you know to, you know as tolkien said that basically you know mortality and immortality is you know he says at one point that it is it is the primary theme of the lord of the rings but he but people sometimes quote that but what they don't quote is what he says immediately afterwards um which is which is to say it was written by a man that is like you know all humans have this you know deep rooted fascination in issues of like life death and mortality and that you know he kind of argues very briefly in about one sentence that you know all human stories in one way or another come down to that um and and so basically so when he says that about the lord of the rings he's saying it in that context but um but certainly it was something that he was um that he was interested in that way but that actually is kind of one of the things that i think is interesting that other than the ring wraiths we don't see that in a lot of other places that is we don't see that desire for immortality um he doesn't go there with vampires um and and you know with many of his other monsters we don't see that exact that same kind of thing um actually what's, he he, he actually ahead. he embeds it in he doesn't embed it in monsters he embeds it in humans right right which is really yes, fascinating exactly. yeah yeah they're the ones who are who are um who have who have the problem with it more of the monsters kind of know where they are um the oathbreakers the ghosts they don't want immortality they want to they want freedom from it they want to they want to get rid of it um they never wanted it in the first place so far as we can tell um but uh the ringwraiths they did want it and now they've got it the barrowites they're in a different situation um and i think have a different kind of origin but it's complicated. It's complicated. The Barrowites are the Barrowites are complicated. We should probably talk about Barrowites because that was the number yeah. one most requested issue, I think. Oh really? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, which understandably, the Barrowites are the Barrowites are pretty are pretty Halloweenish. They're pretty they're pretty spooky. Um, That's true. And 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 that and just that scene is very Halloweenish. We were talking on the Hogshead podcast earlier about how one of the <laughs> one of the classic Gothic elements is um, sort of is claustrophobia and sort of Gothic spaces. Yes. And so you totally see that in the Barrow. Yeah, 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 definitely. Um, yeah. Well, the first thing to point out is that that is first of all what the word means. That is what Barrow White means. Um, and this, like most of Tolkien's names derived from English and Anglo-Saxon, is ter- terrifically disappointing. Um, the word white just means person. It's a very generic word. It's a Middle English word, um, which just means uh, like it's it's literally a common noun that poets like Chaucer and stuff use when they they use it like the word guy, you know, like some wicht, um, or like anybody, you know, like uh, any wicht. I mean, it's like the word wicht. It just means a person. It doesn't huh. even mean a not necessarily mean a human person. Um, so. Uh, 
so when when Pippin, for instance, says to uh, Baragond, when Baragond and Minas Tirith comments on the fact that Pippin is uh, is has a sword which was carved by the men of Numenor, um, and uh, I w- wonders if he will tell him the story of where he got it, and Pippin is like, mm, no, I really don't want to. I'm still kind of freaked out about that. Um, uh, what he you know he says that like it came out of the mounds that are near his country, but evil whites live there um and i he just means like evil dudes live <laughs> there i mean like the barrow whites it's that it's yeah the name, but again, this is what Tolkien usually does, I mean, like you know the mayaris, the name of the special breed of horses, the word mayaris in anglo saxon means horses right Eteros. <laughs> The city of the of of the Rohirrim. The word Edoras in Anglo-Saxon means buildings or towns. So, you know, the, is is white white one of those words that because because of the way Tolkien uses it, we've now incorporated this meaning into it? Because you see it all over the place now, meaning yes. ghost. Yep. Yep. Absolutely, it is. Uh, and that I think also like. Uh, f- uh, from Tolkien through Dungeons and Dragons, yes, um, it's one of the. I mean, there's so <laughs> there are so many things um, that uh, Dungeons and Dragons and other fantasy, other modern fantasy stories and games and things like that have just sort of lifted vocabulary straight from Tolkien, um, and sometimes <laughs> like lifted synonyms and treated them as if they're different. Uh, like subspecies of monsters and stuff like that, um, when really they're just synonyms. But whatever. Um, the, yes, yes, it was like the, the barrel whites, like like orcs and goblins. You like mean? orcs and goblins, exactly. Or yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so um, uh, so yeah, yeah. So it, it's it's uh, yeah. White was just it was a completely it had no preternatural connotations at all in old and middle English. Um, I love the uh, the chat rooms now renamed Barrel Whites to Tomb Dude. Tomb Dude, yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Grave, grave, grave guy. The grave guys. Unbelievable. Yeah. That's hilarious. Guy, George R. R. Martin uses white to mean. Well, actually, I guess he's using it sort of vaguely too. We don't really know what he's talking about and the the things that are beyond the the wall in the north or whatever. Right, but he right. definitely is using the term white, I believe. Yeah, yeah, no, but there's definitely there there are definitely sort of whites in the like creepy undead sense. Um, they're not just the guys on the other side of the wall. Right, they're not just the guys on the other side of the wall. They're like the un, the Walking Dead guys on the other side of the wall. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, yeah, so anyway, so so that's that's so that's sort of the the, the first thing about about Barrow Whites, um, which is really kind of a small things, uh, a small thing. A couple of things that I would that I would and here I would uh, I would want to kind of go to the text a little bit because it's a little bit complicated. Here is the very brief, indeed one sentence description that we get from Tom Bombadil about the Barrow Whites and how they started. This is in the paragraph uh, on page one twenty eight in my trade paperback editions when Tom Bombadil is giving like a brief history of the world or at least of his little bit of the world that he's lived in forever um and uh he talks about let's see in the middle of the paragraph he says uh there were fortresses on the heights kings of little kingdoms fought together and the young sun shone like fire on the red metal of their new and greedy swords here he is referring to the civil wars in the north kingdom of arnor um when it was in decline and had split up into three kingdoms which were fighting against each other 
Um, so, so things are already going rapidly downhill for the North Kingdom of Arnor, which is, of course, where Tom Bombadil's little postage stamp size domain that he's claimed for himself is. Gold was piled on the beers of dead kings and queens, and mounds covered them, and the stone doors were shut, and the grass grew over all. Sheep walked for a while, biting the grass, but soon the hills were empty again. So now the 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 kingdoms, the Dunedain kingdoms are done, and you know the whole place is abandoned. So we've got now just the Dunedain chieftains kind of wandering around and no settlements. Then, okay, a shadow came out of dark places far away, and the bones were stirred in the mounds. Barrow whites walked in the hollow places with a clink of rings on cold fingers and gold chains in the wind. Um, now. The clink of rings on cold fingers sometimes leads people to wonder if there are actually like rings of power involved in any way. I don't think so. Because, um, of course, you'll notice they don't only have rings. They have gold chains. That's just like it's just the treasure, I think, that we're talking about here. Um, the gold. Remember the gold that was piled on the beers of dead kings and queens? Um, so a shadow came out of dark places far away and the bones were stirred in their mounds. Um, this is the chief difference and why the Barrow Whites are fundamentally different from the Ringwraiths. The Ringwraiths are tortured and attenuated human spirits whose lives have been stretched out centuries past where they should have been and until all that's left is an enslaved wraith ghost thing. The Barrow Whites are dead bodies which have been animated by dark spirits which have come into the mounds from outside. And they come in uh, with the, uh, the evil influence that has come – that comes to the area. Um, they're kind of sent there to stir up trouble. Are these, and, are these sort of dark spirits in the same sense of dark spirits coming in inhabiting monsters in the Silmarillion? Yes, I think so. I mean, there's basically, there's clearly a wide range of spirits. That is, there's more than just, you know, there's the Valar, there's the Maiar. Maiar is a pretty general and vague terms, but there's also, and this was much clearer in Tolkien's earlier conceptions of his mythology. He would talk about, like, the people of Manwe, for instance, who were the spirits generally associated with the air. And in his first writings in the Book of Lost Tales and stuff, Tolkien used a lot of the traditional terms, things like sylphs and pixies and brownies and things like that, and he would put them with the appropriate Valar that ruled over the realm that they were associated with, whether it was the air or the earth or things like that. Um, so and, and all and so so some of those spirits who are associated with um, with the Valar are pretty minor spirits like sylphs and brownies and things like that, or those who will come to be called sylphs and brownies uh, by by people later on. Now Morgoth, of course, also has his people, um, spirits of this kind, minor spirits of this kind, and uh, um, and uh, so anyway, so so th- these spirits, these minor league spirits, are ones who will inhabit the spirits of monsters. That seems to be what the werewolves are. That was probably what Thurin Gwethil was. She was a she was a sentient bat, um, which I don't think just means like a bat so highly developed that she um you know has developed sentience and uh and free will and everything like that. She is she is um you know, also one of these spirits which has invested an animal form. Um, and the werewolves are clearly like that too. Um, I don't think the werewolves are werewolves in the 
um, Anthony Hopkins sense. You know, they're werewolves in they like that is human beings which have caught a disease called lycanthropy and uh, therefore turn into wolves. Those there are many legends about those. Um, there was a quite famous medieval story, um, uh, one of Marie de France's lays called Bisque la Vraie, uh, which just means werewolf in old French, um, uh, about a, a guy who you know this 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 noble who had this uh, this dark secret, which is that he used to go out and turn into a wolf every now and again, blow off some steam. But anyway, um, so so I I don't think they're werewolves in the sense of human beings, which sometimes either are privileged to or or uh, cursed to turn into wolves. Um, but rather they're these these evil spirits who invest the form of wolves. Um, like Sauron does. Sauron becomes a werewolf um, when he fights and is trumped by Huon and Luthien um, in uh, the story of Luthien to Nuviel. So, um, so anyway, yes. Yeah, so, so I think that those are the same order of spirits. Um, also, probably the same things which are in dragons uh, and stuff. Anyway, that they come in and they take over dead bodies. Um, now, the interesting thing, I think, is... The complicated thing with the Barrowites is exactly what what connection, if any, is there between the Barrowites and the dead people whose graves and bodies they appear to um they appear yeah. to inhabit. I'm just gonna ask that because that's, that's, oh, go ahead, that's, that's, con- that's something that that always confused me. I mean, I think I've got it straight now, but I know it wasn't clear to me um when I read it for the first few times who they actually were. Yeah, because mm-hmm. they, they seem to have – well, I guess they could just know things about them, but they seem to possess memories. Yes, yes. Well, the thing the, – by far the most puzzling moment of all of this is Mary's memory when he wakes up from his dream. Yes. Right, right. That's the that's the moment that puzzles many. Verlin Flieger loves this moment. It's like one of her favorite moments in the Lord of the Rings. Um, uh, when Mary <laughs> wakes up, surprised. She, she's commented on this a couple. Well, times, now it's but... my it, now it's one of my favorite moments. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I, I agree. <laughs> I know, I know, Laura. You're you're like Verlin Flieger's number one fan. You know, that's... <laughs> I am. I I really am. Yeah. Um, yeah, so this is, of course, is on page on page one forty of Fellowship of the Ring when uh, Mary wakes up uh, and you know he says, "What in the name of wonder?" began Mary, feeling the golden circlet that had slipped over one eye. Then he stopped, and a shadow came over his face, and he closed his eyes. Of course, I remember," he said. "The men of Carn Doom came on us at night, and we were worsted. Ah, the spear in my heart!" He clutched at his breast. "No, no," he said, opening his eyes. "What am I saying? I've been dreaming. Where did you get to?" Frodo. In other words, he is he has what appears to be the memory of the guy whose tomb he was in, who was one of the one of the nobles of the Dunedain, who was because we we know that he was one of the good guys. It's not one of the bad guys whose memories he has, because he talks about fighting the men of Karn Doom, which is the capital of the Witch King of Angmar. So he was one of the good guys who was fighting against the Witch King. And he remembers uh he remembers getting stabbed by a spear and dying. Um now, but again the complicated thing is, does that how does that connect with the Barrow White himself? Um and I don't think it suggests that the Barrow White has those memories necessarily. 
um, that he himself is, in any sense, that dead Dunedine who was buried in that tomb. Yeah, I think that I thought that the Barrowites were actually um, perhaps the men of Karndoom who would also have been killed in that battle. Is that is that correct? Well, it's possible, but see, they wouldn't be buried there because um, these were the these were the barrows of the Dunedine, and but the bar- the Barrow White ultimate. I mean, again, it has its origin in this this darkness which has come over the land and these evil spirits who enter into these tombs. The tombs weren't always like this. This is not like the unquiet dead, like the Dunedine have spontaneously risen from their graves or anything. They were fine. The Dunedine, that is, were fine. They were dead. They were like comfortably dead. Um, to me, the most interesting and uh, revealing thing that we get about the Barrow, the one glimpse that we are actually given of Barrow Whitish existence from the first person standpoint is the incantation that the Barrow White sings over the bodies of Mary and Pippin and Sam. Um, yeah. This is on 138. Cold be hand and heart and bone, and cold be sleep under stone, never more to wake on stony bed, never till the sun fails and the moon is dead. In the black wind the stars shall die, and still on gold here let them lie, till the dark lord lifts his hand over dead sea and withered land. Cold be hand and heart and bone. So this is an incantation. He is saying this to the hobbits. like he, This is what he's going to do to the hobbits. Um, mm-hmm. It's a command, cold be hand, it's in the subjunctive, cold be hand and heart and bone, and cold be sleep under stone. In other words, he's going, he is dooming them to be corpses, sort of, never more to wake on stony bed, never till the sun fails and the moon is dead. Um, and that they'll still be lying there on gold when the stars die in the black wind. That is, when the Dark Lord lifts his hand over dead sea and withered land until the Dark Lord wins, which, of course, the Barrow White thinks is going to happen. Um, spoiler, it's not going to happen. <laughs> but, uh, now, I always wondered, um, the, the Dark Lord is ambiguous in a sense because it could refer all the way back to Morgoth uh, because yes. Morgoth is supposed to make a return eventually. Right, and, and he was the one that's all that was all big into you know let's kill the sun and the moon and and uh, the two trees and all that. So yes, um, yes, I, I I too take the Dark Lord there as meaning Morgoth, not Sauron. Of course, no human being reading the Lord of the Rings when it first came out could possibly know that because no, no one had no. ever heard of Morgoth. <laughs> but I do think that that's what Tolkien meant. Um, when he wrote that. Um, Yes, I mean, we have basically the Barrow White wishing death or a death-like state upon the hobbits in particular and upon the world as a whole um, in general, over the Dead Sea and withered land. This is sort of the goal. And the way, way anyway, that I've always taken this, I mean, the emphasis that seems to me important here is that the Barrow White is essentially trying to make them like him. Um, and I don't right. think the Barrow White is like especially like the Barrow White isn't accomplishing anything here. Yeah, I mean, like basically, it's just like I see warm, living, happy creatures, and I want to bring them in and make them dead. In some ways, 
Here's cool. I never thought of this before. In some ways, it's like the opposite of dragons. Um, and I've been thinking about this because we've been talking about this in the Mythgard class. We've, we've just been talking about dragons, um, various dragons with Tolkien and with uh, and Fafnir, who became a dragon uh, in in the Old Norse legends, um, who was the precursor to Tolkien's dragons in many ways. And of course, the way that and but basically the the, the principle here is the one which C.S. Lewis illustrates so clearly in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. That is when when Eustace becomes a dragon. That sort of the standard dragon model is that you become dragonish by acting like a dragon. So you know you have the desire for the so so basically we've got two instances where we've got a grave that's full of gold, okay, or like you've got like a big pile of gold. If you go into the pile of gold voluntarily and seek to possess it, you become dragonish. But that's not what is going on here with the Barrow Whites. Um, he is bringing them in by force and condemning them to sit upon the gold. Mm-hmm. Not in a dragon. It, so it becomes their tomb, not their hoard. Um, they don't, like Eustace, turn into a dragon. Instead, they turn into, will they become whites? Will they be, you know, Barrow Whites? Will they become, um, you know, will they, be, will they become wraiths? Will they just die? Um, I'm not sure ultimately what's going to happen to them if uh, Frodo doesn't wake up and and call in the uh, uh, the quite unusual cavalry that is Tom Bombadil. Um, but uh, but anyway, what the Barrow White is doing is he is making them like himself, um, and and I don't think I don't think. I don't think he enjoys it. I mean, this, the, what it sounds like to me, the way I've always taken his incantation is basically, this is my world. This is my existence. The inside mm-hmm. of this tomb and the cold gold and the empty life and the darkness. And I want, I'm, I'm going to take you bright, happy, warm, living things, and I'm going to make you like me, miserable like me shadowed and darkened and cold like me. And in fact, I look forward to the day when the whole world is like that. Um, when everything is as, is, is like me and is as miserable as I am. Um, anyway, that, <clears throat> that seems to be kind of the direction that the, that the Barrow White. Right. So, so who were the Barrow Whites originally though? Where, where did they come from? Well, see, I think they've been like sent here. I mean, the darkness comes and the evil spirits enter the tombs. That's a word that's used to describe it. This they enter the tombs, um, like voluntarily, recreationally. I'm not sure. I don't think so. What's their purpose? What's their point? They don't. Yeah, you know, we never and why, see them. Being, why those yeah. tombs in particular? Yeah. Well, I mean, why not the tombs? The 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 mounds of the Rohirrim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean. They seem to be associated with uh to be associated with with the witch king and the whole uh the whole evil movement um in the in the north of middle earth there um in the yeah I always thought that they came came from angmar yep uh, I guess yep, just I because so. of proximity yeah yeah, I think so, but like you said, it seems to have um a different agenda because it it shows no interest in the ring at all. Uh, right. You would think it would sense something like that uh, on Frodo, but it really yeah. is kind of, you know, <laughs> I guess is task orientated where it's like, okay, we're, we're going to make you into these, these corpses and, and I'm going to do this and, and the, the other stuff really doesn't matter sort of thing. 
Yes. Yes. Um, no, I, I, yeah, I agree. I mean, they're not, they're not deployed militarily by Angmar. Um, it, it seems, and again, this, this is, this is one of the things that leads me to read his incantation in the way that I do is that it seems like the only thing that is accomplished by the entrance of the evil spirits into these barrows is the taking of basically like it's like taking ground right these were the these this was this was the burial ground of the good guys um you know these were good and noble people who who were buried here who are being commemorated here and their grave places their their very memories um even their very bones uh are being taken over by evil and being made into a place of evil kind of so like, like a, a desecration Minas, or corruption exactly exactly kind of like Minas Ithil into Minas Morgul um mm. We're going to take something that's good, that's you know sort of powerful for a, for good, and we're going to turn it into evil, and because it, it's not obvious that any use is ever made of the barrel whites, um, you know, I mean, okay, so well, so now the graves that are there are haunted, like you know, mission accomplished, guys. Like now, what are you <laughs> going to do? Well, like again, like they're never deployed, <laughs> so far as we can tell. But th- that doesn't seem to be the point of them. The point of them is basically just like corruption, the corruption of evil. We're going to spread this darkness and death um, and this attitude of darkness and death um, because that that's what the Barrow White does. You know, you come near you come near my Barrow and I'm going to bring and I'm going to I'm going to assimilate you into the, yeah. my dark my world of darkness and evil and and, and corruption. Um well you're right that that is a theme later on. Um you know we see it with Treebeard talking about how the the orcs, you know, they just came and cut down trees for no purpose. They they didn't right. burn them or anything or use them. They just cut them down and and then just the the desolation that Sauron seems to leave behind him uh, in Mordor the the pits filled with muck and vapors that there's no purpose to them. They're just you know, filth left out there to corrupt the land. Right. Right. So. Yes. Exactly. No. And I think that uh, I think that there are some there are some similar things that we can see in common. There's actually I, I think we can see some common threads among several of the things that people suggested uh, that we talk about tonight. Um, the Barrow Whites are in that way, you know, like that kind of corruption, like Mirkwood, right? The the corruption of Greenwood the Great into Mirkwood, and just sort of the spreading of this evil and darkness, and not just darkness, but literal blackness, like the animals turn black in Mirkwood. Um, and uh, and the the desolation of Smaug, and you know the blasted state of the of the land around the uh, the Black Gate, and the dead marshes. Like all of these things are are things which have been twisted and corrupted for no purpose. You know, for no real strategic reason, um, but just as a byproduct. Like it, it's what evil does is destroy things is twist things is pervert things that's the very nature of evil is good good things that a good thing that is twisted and perverted and mm-hmm. um and that's what and that's what evil creatures do so the, i mean it's and it's not and with the white it's gonna i don't think with the barrow white it's strategic i don't think he's got a plan i don't think he's got a purpose um he just he just wants to, uh, but then, but then that's why just, just Mary's evil, memory huh? is so fascinating. Is that Mary? Well, yeah, you know, yeah, exactly. Just you know, generic evil. Um, 
but again, that, but that's why Mary's memory is so fascinating is that Mary's memory, I'm not sure. I mean, certainly it's a product of him having been under the spell of the Barrow White, but I, it's not obvious to me that Mary's memory is a direct result of the Barrow White spell in the sense of like the Barrow White gave him that dream because the dream that he had was the memory of the good guy who was buried there. Um, no. And I'm not sure, and I, I I still don't know what to do with that. I mean, I I find that passage really uh, kind of uh, tantalizing, and I'm not sure I'm not sure how to take it or where to take it exactly. Um, you know, if Mary somehow like was in touch with, in some sense, you know, the spirit of the guy who was buried there. I don't know. I mean, I I don't know what to do with it, but um, but it's uh. But it's really it's it's really fascinating. Hey, so um, one uh, comment that came up a while ago in the chat room is, uh, "What's the difference between the whites and the dudes that are in the the marshes of the dead or the dead marshes?" Yeah, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> yeah, they are uh, different. <laughs> well, for one thing, they go go ahead, Laura. Weren't the people in the Dead Marshes um, people who had been killed in the um, Battle of the Last Alliance? Elves and men mm-hmm. who had been who had been killed, and that was their their spirits. Although I don't know why they would be unquiet spirits. Yes, exactly. No, <clears throat> the mechanism... unless something unless something similar is coming from Mordor right. and sort of making yeah. them evil. I I mean the mechanism of the. Um... The mechanism of the dead marshes is not very clear. I mean, is is not uh, is never really explained. Um, well, isn't that doesn't that take from some of the folk tales about lights and swamps and mm-hmm. and marshes mm-hmm. and things like that? Yes, yes, it does. Um, I mean, the the tradition of 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 wisps and fairy lights and things like that in in marshes. Um, uh, I mean, that's, that's a very well-established tradition and he is kind of working with that within the, within the world, within the world of Middle Earth. It's not, uh, um, it's not real. I said, it's not very clear kind of what's going on there. I mean, obvious differences between the dead things, the dead faces, uh, in the marshes, uh, and the Barrow Whites is that first of all, they they don't seem to have any corporeal being, um, as Gollum says, um, only to see and not to touch, because um, he tried, right? Uh, you know, as Sam darkly speculates, Gollum probably tried to eat them at one point and failed. Um, so <laughs> he says that. Yeah, I mean, Sam shudders to think of why Gollum was trying to reach them, and he's clearly implying that he thinks Gollum was trying to eat the corpses. But, um, but anyway, he 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 couldn't do it. You know, sh- only shapes to see, not to touch. Says call um and uh and certainly they appear to be right under the surface but they're not they're not tangible so okay so first of all they don't have bodies barrow whites do have bodies uh frodo hacks one of their hands off so clearly clearly they have corporeal bodies so that's one obvious difference they also do things like move and talk and sing creepy songs. So, and that also clearly the things and the faces in the dead marshes don't have. They seem to be completely inert. They seem to be just visual representations. Um, they don't seem to be animate 
at all. They seem to be a memory and or a memory or a memorial. And what I would connect them with generally, like the other places in Tolkien's works that I would connect them with actually have nothing to do with death at all, but ways in which places seem to have memories in Tolkien's world. Remember the passage when in the Fellowship of the Ring, when the Fellowship is traveling south from Rivendell and they're going through Eregion, um, through the land of Holland, and Legolas speaks of like how the stones remember the elves that live there. Um, yeah, you know, yeah. Deep, right. deep they delved right. us, high they builded us, but they are gone. They are gone. The land remembers the elves that live there. Um, and this kind of animism, this kind of like the sense that like locations have particular kind of spirits um, or memories um, is that we see this come up in a bunch of places, even like, you know, the old forest, the old forest keeps grudges, you know, against the hobbits for burning, you know, uh, for, you know, for, right for, for the bonfire, for the bonfire. Yeah, exactly. Um yeah, I th- and I thought Legolas was just being, you know, kind of sentimental. I didn't think right. he really literally meant. Well, see, it, that's, it I mean, memory. there are several passages like that, which are, I mean, it could just be poetical, right? I mean, he could just be speaking sort of figuratively or something. Um, but there are a bunch of times like that. And to, so for me, the Dead Marshes is, is one of the the biggest examples of this, that this the land here has been scarred by the battle that was there and all of the corpses, the thousands of corpses that were buried there. And it remembers, so it's like the land remembers the dead. Um, the marshes have grown since the battle, says Gollum, and has swallowed up the graves. But the corpses aren't there. You know, the corpses are gone. The corpses have disintegrated. Um, but it's but it's like the marshes themselves, the land itself, still remembers the the battle still remembers the bodies, still remembers the dead. And so they are kind of commemorated in this way. So it's just haunted, in other words. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But not haunted by the spirits of the dead themselves. The spirits of the dead are presumably not involved at all. That is why I think these the the faces in the dead marshes appear to be completely inanimate and uh, and um, and not sentient this this is why by the way i'm not a big fan of the dead marshes sequence in the film because it doesn't make a lot of sense to me i mean like okay it's like spookier you know and uh if the dead faces never moved or did anything it would look much more lame on film so i can kind of (laughs) understand why they did it i mean like it's cool and everything but from a thematic standpoint, it doesn't make all that much sense to me. Um, why Why would there be spirits of the dead who are still there? Because um, uh, we don't see that happening. We don't see like routine hauntings um, in Tolkien. That is like the spirit of a dead person who comes back to, you know, haunt the place where they lived or something like that. Or the place where they died or like that. I can't think of any examples of that kind yeah, of Yeah, we just have – we Tolkien. have the – Oath breakers, but they're obviously a special case. Right, exactly. They're being held there by Is- by Isildur's curse. So yeah, no, mm-hmm. I mean, there's not uh, there's not that kind of routine haunting. Um, 
And so therefore, again, yeah, so no, they're, they're, not, they're not really there. The spirits of the dead, I don't think we have any reason to think the spirits of the dead are actually there in the dead marshes. Um, but, uh, but interestingly, the one piece of activity, again, like the Barrow Whites, um, Gollum suggests that perhaps, you know, if the hobbits uh, go down to join the dead ones, they would light little candles of their own, right? Um, so they're, like, they will assimilate you, but not like the Barrow Whites again, because there's not that kind of active force behind it. There's no intention behind it. The Barrow Whites are actively seeking to assimilate living things into their world of coldness and death and darkness. The dead marshes, they're just, they're actually a, a growing place. You know, they, there's, there's, you know, as, uh, as the narrator suggests, like at least in the, in the dead marshes, there's still like pond scum and stuff. Good, healthy, green pond scum, um, uh, compared to the desolation before the black gates. But anyway, um, they, they, it, it really seems to be, as I say, the memories of the dead. And I don't know who else's memories it could be if not um, if not the land itself. Could it, be, dead... could it be like a window into the past a little bit, the surface of the water? Yeah, I mean, possibly. Possibly in that sense that we're getting a glimpse, you know, that for some way, for, in some way the water has become this kind of window into the memory of the land or something. I, yeah, I mean, in some sense. But again, certainly, like, did Sauron make it? I don't see why. I mean, I don't see what the point is. There's, there's, it doesn't do anything. I mean, again, it, it serves even less point than the Barrow Whites serve. Um, it's just, especially since the memory of the, um, the memory of the good guys is not corrupt. I mean, like, that is, when Frodo describes seeing them, he describes seeing, you know, the elves with noble faces and sad. Um, you know, they're not, twisted they're not corrupted they're you know i mean they're dead they're rotten they're corpses but um but they're still good corpses <laughs> so i don't know um it, it just seems like a more of a memory imprinted on the place that yeah that doesn't necessarily have to do anything with what um sauron was trying to achieve just something that came about because of the fact that so many people struggled and and died there and and yeah. thus even the the orcs are still in there, and they're not. You know, I think I think all of them, the the men, the the elves, and the orcs are described as you know that that sadness look. Yep. 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 No, exactly. I mean, and that's 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 so that's how I take the dead marshes and why I think the the specters or whatever you want to call them that are in the marshes are very different from the Barrowites, who are very different from the Nazgul. Um, and who have nothing to do with vampires because they're not bats. There <laughs> <laughs> so, we are. Went all the way back to the beginning. Perfect. That's right. Yeah, yeah. See how I tied all that together there? Well, well done, sir. We, we actually got to almost everything. We didn't talk about spiders, but... Uh, Boy, um, let me tell you, just on the, on the, on the point of spiders... Um, so, so last Friday, um, as some of you know, I was over at Warner Brothers Interactive Entertainment getting a private demo of the new Lord of the Rings game that comes out tomorrow, uh, yeah, Lord of the Rings, War in the, War in the North. That's right. Or wait, 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 wait. The Lord of the Rings, colon, <laughs> War, War, in, War the in the North. War in the North. Yes. That's right. right. You've got to get your articles right. Yes. And uh, yeah, one of the stages they let us play was, um, was uh, Mirkwood. And I got to tell you, if you have even a touch of arachnophobia, it's horrifying. 
<laughs> it's really terrifying. Oh gosh, uh, it's it's pretty bad. <laughs> Let me tell you. Oh. Wow. And, and also, Corey, I just got to say, the game's significantly harder when you're not when you don't have um, unending life. <laughs> What you mean, like when the bad guys actually hurt you? Yes. Contact those little guys would make it harder. The little guys running around who blow up—they do a lot of damage. So, but oh, yeah, man, the, that was um, awful. The spiders yeah. are horrendous, and I was just thinking that's going to be a really scary scene in The Hobbit, or it could yes. be. Yes. If if yeah. the it should be. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It, if the CGI yeah, it sucks, then it'll be stupid. But actually yeah. it'll be that you know george it'll be that perfect juxtaposition of of horror and humor that uh, that we were talking about earlier because it'll be like <laughs> these this terrifying scene with these giant scary spiders and then hopefully martin freeman bobbing around singing the old fat spider song yeah if if martin freeman does not say uh Adderkop and old tom naughty <laughs> Like, I'm going to be really upset. Like, I'm sorry. Like, I'm not going to leave the theater, but I'm going to be mad if the word adder cop is not said by Martin Freeman. Like, I'm sorry. You got to have standards, and that's, you know, I'm sorry. I got to stand for that. Will you storm out? I won't storm out. I will control myself, but I will complain bitterly about it afterwards forever. I, I would like to say that would mean uh, – that would make an excellent YouTube video. <laughs> you you jumping up in the middle of the film shouting some kind of uh, some kind of indistinguishable profanity and then running out shouting adder cop adder cop <laughs> well no i would just have to supply the adder copper yes. even uh, better yeah rather than yeah. storming out just run down to the front and start singing the song <laughs> exactly That'd yeah. be like a live action uh, Hobbit as opposed to, you know, live action Rocky Horror. So, <laughs> yeah, no, it's no, it's fine. But that was kind of like the, I mean, I have to choose very, uh, very patient um, and long suffering people to go see these movies with. Like the people who saw the Lord of the Rings movies in the theater with me were very patient because, I mean, it's like I, there are enough quotations that. You know, I like was quoting along with parts of the movie the first time that I saw it, which is a strange experience to have. Like to, to, and then of course it would throw me for a loop. You know, when they would quote things just like in completely different contexts. But, but the but the other thing is that they would they would um, they would give most of a quote and stop and like and then I would like finish you know, it finish it you know like like when theoden before the battle of of opponent for it's like you know as i said for lord and land and then he stops and so i you know <laughs> shouted and league of friendship but everyone looked at me and was like what is wrong with this guy <laughs> well if it makes you feel any better the people who watched the lord of the rings with me no longer will watch the lord of the rings with me <laughs> I don't even watch the movies, but that's a whole nother subject. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's 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 because now I'm looking forward to the Hobbits. But I'm telling you, I'm th like just I don't know I don't know anything about the script, but the word adder cop better be in it. That's all I have to say. Um, but but you're right. I mean, certainly it's one of the things that's going on in the book is the 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 poise between horror and humor. There, mm -hmm. I mean, Tolkien mm -hmm. is pretty careful there, as as in other places. He's he's very very delicate in poising those two things and and not not backing off from it. I mean, having genuinely horrifying things there, but not making it simply overwhelmingly horrifying. Um, 
and uh and you know even even to not just the lines like the the you know Bilbo's song and stuff but even in in some of the descriptions like the the comparison when when Bilbo kicks the spider um uh yeah comparing it to the, to uh the sound that it makes when you kick a flabby football and stuff you know like a lot of the language that he uses or the comparison of the dwarves to uh to like toys bobbing on a wire and things mm-hmm. you know he uses several funny and lighthearted and childish that is like things associated with the play of children um language throughout that scene um which does a does a really good job of diffusing it while still retaining the like seriousness and and horror of the situation um but yeah on on screen on screen that's going to be pretty intense and the thing is is like if you're going to do what i suspect okay here's here's a fearless prediction i think he's going to he being peter jackson is going to downplay bilbo's heroism in that scene because that's the moment in the book when Bilbo starts kicking butt and taking names. I mean, he, he, or well, giving names, I guess, Lord. But he, um, he really, I mean, he just like takes over and, and starts beating the crap out of spiders. And if Peter Jackson does a full like creaky, creepy arachnophobic spider thing there, and then has Bilbo coming in and just like mowing them down with his sword and with his rocks, um, like all of a sudden, Bilbo is going to look like you know an action hero. He d- turns into an action hero in the book. Um, and my 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 fearless prediction is that Bilbo is not going to turn into an action hero in the movie. I think that he's going to be more bumbling and comical still. Oh man! Yeah, well, <laughs> just a guess, just a guess, just a guess. But it's a it's a guess based upon the general trends that we can see in the Lord of the Rings films, where they are continually reducing the. Uh, the heroism and uh, sort of stature uh, of of, well, the, of characters. I, I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna go against you on that one because yeah? I think. Uh, yeah, I think they'll they'll do something a little more like uh, what they did with uh, with Frodo and Sam. You know, they did get more heroic. I mean, Frodo was Frodo was kind of depressed from the beginning, but you know, <laughs> yeah. Sam especially did get more heroic in in the movies. I think. I think they will. I think they will make Frodo the hero because who else are you going to really focus on as the hero except Bard maybe? And he's only got he doesn't have that much, won't have that much film time, I doubt. But right. So and, I think and, and I think they'll 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 the make yeah. I think they'll make I think they'll make Bilbo somewhat of a hero. I mean I don't know if they'll go really that far. You know making him a superhero or, or anything, but I think yeah. he'll, I think he'll kick, kick some butt against those spiders. I, th- yeah, I think that'd yeah, be cool. We'll I'd see. like to see that. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to it. And of course, then the real question is, are the spiders going to be in the first film or the second film? Where is the break in films going to be? That's one yeah. of the big mysteries. I personally I'm gonna make, think the... I'm going to make another prediction. I think they're going to have Tom Bombadil in this. <laughs> <laughs> I think they're really sorry they didn't have him in the first film. Oh yeah, I think he's going to make an appearance. So. Singing yeah. Addercop. Exactly. They, 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 yeah, I'm sure. Up. I'm sure Peter Jackson's sitting around saying, you know, man, and we have these, uh, uh, we have these perfectly good yellow boots sitting around that we didn't get to use in the last films. You know, we gotta. I know. I know. Well, you know, Tom Bombadil. Pom, oh, sorry, Bombadil. <laughs> uh, Fits in pretty well with this with uh, the spirit of the Hobbit. 
you know, even, you know, it's true. He'll just be, he'll be on a road trip visiting Bard when they stop by. There you go. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. Yeah. That's quite possible. It's quite unlikely actually, but, uh, (laughs) but, uh, (laughs) yeah, no, I, I, it will be interesting to see. I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I I don't know where they're going to break it. My, my guess would be, I, I, my my prediction for where the midpoint in the films is going to be is is the house of Bjorn. I think the spiders are going to be are going to be in the second film. Um, that we're going to end with. Uh, I think they're going to beef up. You know, when uh, in the book when when Bjorn goes off stage and goes over and tracks down the goblins and wargs and like captures the two of them and tortures them until they talk and then and then like rips off their heads. I think that that part, which all happens off sc- off screen. Um, I think that that part is going to be pretty beefed up. I think we're going to get like a Bjorn action scene. Remember all those bears that come and hang out around Bjorn's house at night and don't ever do anything? I think in the films they're going to fix that, and those bears are going to like come into action. I think we're going to get a, like a, a goblin-Bjorn little skirmish there at the end of the first movie as like a foreshadowing of the Battle of Five Armies that's going to happen at the end. That's a, hmm. I don't think I that have, would bother I me very another, much. I've I think I would be okay question. with that. Yeah. I think they're going to end it when the eagles uh, rescue the uh, the hobbit and the dwarves. That's so early. To end with the eagles are coming. It's well, it's not that early because Frodo, uh, Frodo, Bilbo has the ring, and that's sort of a foreshadowing of what happens at the last army, and that's a nice catastrophe to end the first film on. So there's my prediction. Eagles. Okay. okay. We'll see. They're going <laughs> to Corey. They're going to end with hitting the magical button combination. Exactly. The U catastrophe button. So useful. <laughs> Except, of course, it really does go against the definition of U catastrophe, <laughs> when you which is have it an on act of me. sudden grace which can't be counted on to recur unless you hit the right button combination on your <laughs> Xbox controller. In which case, you can count on it every time. Um, <laughs> So it does take a little something away from you, Catastrophe. But anyway, it's still pretty cool. It should be a button that only works randomly. Yes. See, that's how I would totally do it. Like you could do this button and there's like a random chance. You know, there's like a certain degree of chance that it will work every time you do it. That's actually, that's totally how they should have. Oh, what a missed opportunity. Instead of just having like a certain number of like feathers or whatever to use to summon the eagle, you should have like any time during the game you can summon the eagle but it probably won't work but sometimes yeah one in a million chance <laughs> one of these times it works <laughs> that would be fantastic oh man okay well just don't tell me there are taxi service in that game i don't <laughs> think that i don't know i don't know but i mean there are taxi service in the hobbit i guess so you know it works <laughs> All right. Well, All right. well it's getting late on the East Coast. We should probably it is wrap it up. Late on the East Coast, we should. So, uh, well, thanks everybody. This has been a, has been a fun conversation, and uh, we will uh, sign off now. We'll try to get this episode out uh, here for everybody who missed the first part of it due to technical failures and to people who couldn't uh, make it. Um, I had uh, I had one listener who lives in England who is threatening to stay up for this, and I was like, Andy, you're insane. But anyway, so I don't know if Andy. If you stayed up, congratulation. If not, I'm kind of glad, and you'll still get a chance to hear this. Um, I believe he's in there. Is he? Oh my goodness! And he's incredible. Lunatic. Um, he was. He was Mythgard yeah. class too, I think. So. Oh wow. So uh, yeah, that was a great show, and I, 
Thank you to everybody who was in the chat room. It was an awesome chat room tonight. Yeah, that's great. We should see if... Uh, um, can you save a transcript of it? I think I can probably do that. Dave, is that possible? See if you can save a transcript of it, and we'll see if uh, if we can if I can post that somewhere, maybe on my website or something. That would be pretty awesome. Yeah. It looks like yeah. I I think I can. Yep, the entire thing's in there. Copy. Awesome. Cool. Cool. Good. Paste. Then so uh, uh, we need to do more of these live events, Corey. Yeah, that would be fun. Hate to commit you to it, but. Uh... <laughs> I mean, this is—I've you know, been wanting to do—I've been wanting to do, uh, wanting to do and, and, and several people were sort of hoping that we'd be able to do some live Skype call-in tonight, um, which, which, which I decided just to kind of simplify things and do that later on. Because I mean, I've done Skype call-in sessions before, um, but that was before the uh, before the advent of Middle Earth Network Radio. So now we can do live call-in shows with the chat room and everything. So uh, um, right on. Live, live broadcast rather than just having people talk to me and yes. be recorded. So and letting people interact in in the uh, in the chat room too. So yeah, yeah, no, that's great. And uh, <clears throat> so now we should definitely do that. So when I do, uh, yeah, so that will be my plan. When I do call-in sessions from now on, we'll do them. We'll do them in this live format, and uh, and I hope to do one of those soon. I'm not gonna commit myself to exactly when that's going to happen because I'm not sure but <laughs> but I but but I I would definitely smart move. Yeah. Yeah. But I would want to do that sooner rather than later. Yeah. And um and George thanks for um uh jumping on at the last second. Uh, same to you Laura too. Thank you guys both for getting last minute oh, notice to do it was this. My, oh, thank you. My pleasure. Um and thank you and for it, letting me be on. Absolutely. I I would love I hope um um George, uh, hopefully one of these days soon, Corey can have you on and do like a Tolkien chat episode with you so the listeners can hear more from you. And, and Laura, it was wonderful to hear your voice on the – I mean, I'm not listening to the podcast, but it was wonderful to, to do this with you again. I, I missed the Silmarillion seminar days. I know. I just don't know what to do with myself on Wednesday nights anymore. Well, I guess we need to get our butts in gear on the uh, the new seminar and on um, uh, the Silmarillionaires. Yep. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yes. All right. All right. Night, oh, everyone. So let it go. Yep. Okay. Yes. Good night, everybody. Yep. Night. Thank you for listening, everybody, and thank you to all of our guests. And Corey, I'm going to let you uh, take us away. Okay. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.